Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. So if you have a Bible, open up to John chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'll make sure you get one. We want you to go through the Word of God. If you need a Bible, just lift your hand up. Greg will make sure you get one. And uh, turn with me to John chapter 11. We've been uh, traveling through this, the Gospels on a journey with Jesus, uh, following his life, ministry, in chronological order. And we find ourselves in the Gospel of John today. And uh, what in a glorious chapter this is, chapter 11. Um, spoiler alert, it is the chapter where Jesus uh, resurrects Lazarus from the dead. And uh, it, it is an incredible account of a, a glorious miracle that has translation to us, like it matters to us that this happened. And uh, Jesus made a big point of this and, and as, because it does affect us. You know, Paul said that without the resurrection of Jesus, we would have nothing to come and worship. We'd, there'd be no reason for us to come. The, the gospel would be dead. It would be not good news. But the fact that Jesus did rise again from the dead, uh, how that translates to us and Jesus emulating that fact through this glorious account, this miracle that he did with uh, his friend Lazarus. And so it's an awesome time. Unfortunately, we will not get there today because there's so much packed into this chapter that, you know, I don't know. I, I, was, I was ambitious to try and uh, bite off 16 verses and I got to six. So, you know, it happens. But uh, there's just so much stuff in this chapter that is incredible. And, uh, you know, we're, we've We've basically been journeying for a couple years through this. You only come to John chapter 11 once through, the, through this uh, chron chronology of Jesus' life, so I don't want to miss anything. And I hope you don't either because it's glorious. So stand with me if you would, please. I'm going to read John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his hair with her feet or wiped his feet with her hair whose brother Lazarus was ill so the sisters sent to him saying lord he whom you love is ill but when jesus heard it he said this illness does not lead to death it is for the glory of god so that the son of god may be glorified through it but jesus loved martha and her sister and lazarus so when he heard that lazarus was ill he stayed 2 days longer in the place where he was. And Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning. We thank you for what it means for us. The truths that are found in these six verses and in this entire chapter are life-changing for us. Lord, let us hear your, your voice to us today. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to obey your spirit today, Lord. Speak to us and just help us to, to understand how all of our lives work together to bring glory to you. So, Lord, we ask you to come and teach us. Lord, get me out of the way and just speak to us now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most common questions in the universe is no doubt the question, why? Anybody who has children or has been around children understands that that question is a continual question that will always come up. Why? Why this? Why that? Why, why, why? And the, it's, it's not a bad question in the right attitude. It's a great question if you, if you come about it with the right heart. But it's a dangerous question if you come at it with the wrong heart. For instance, if my children ask me the question, why does it get dark out at night? That's an innocent question. You can tell them, well, the, the way that God created the world and all that, the, the sun rises and sets, and, you know, the Lord gave a greater light during the day and a, a lesser light, in the, and it's all in the Bible, right? But, but, but if my children come to me, uh, same question framed differently, why do I have to go to bed when it's dark? That is a whole different question. That is a rebellion against authority. That is a question of not necessarily a curiosity, but that is a rebellion. And so we have to look at it that way. Well, it's, it's the same way that that question can be asked to the Lord in an innocent way and also in a very rebellious way. Perhaps you guys have, 
you know, been in situations where you've asked God why. I have a, I have a clip of somebody who was doing that. Adam's going to roll that for us here. And uh, maybe you'll, you'll, uh, you'll, you're like, is Adam there? He's not there. Well, Silas is going to roll this video for us here. Maybe this is like you. And ladies, maybe it's, maybe you'll, you'll, uh, this will be applicable to you tonight, today. Yeah, so, why, God, why? And you know, you've probably asked the question, and it's not, uh, it's not necessarily a wrong question if it's asked with the right heart. Um, you know, for instance, you, you, you have people that ask this question all the time. If God is so loving, then why does he allow suffering, right? Have you ever had that question, like, if God is so loving, why does he allow evil? Or if God is so loving, why did he create hell? Or, you know, if... If God, you see the problem with the framing of the question? It's questioning God. It's if God is loving. It's not a question if God is loving. God is loving. That's not the question. But when we ask the question, if God is this or if God is that, it's a rebellion against the Word of God and what the Word of God says about God and who He is. It's really the right question would be, since God is loving, why does he allow evil in the world? That would be the right question. That's, an, that's a question of a curiosity. That's a question of saying, God, I understand who you are, but I don't understand what you're doing. Nothing wrong with that question. In fact, God doesn't mind you coming to him with those kind of questions. I think uh, sometimes we hear that, you know, we should never question God. You're not questioning God when you come to God with curious questions like, why, Lord, are you... Um, do you allow these things to happen in my life? I don't, I don't understand it. I'm not questioning your authority and what you're doing, but I'm curious and I, and I want to know. And I believe that God as a loving Father will reveal those things to us. I think He will reveal Himself in those types of questions as we ask Him why. It's not wrong to ask God why, but it is wrong to question His authority. And many times when we come to God, like the video... We're coming to him assassinating his character and his nature through our own heart and through our questions. Why does God allow these things? Because God is loving. He's incredibly patient. In fact, but we know something about God according to Genesis chapter 6 that he will not put up with sinful man forever. We know that there's a time period where the Lord is allowed. We're in the age of grace today. That the age of grace will shut one day and the wrath of God will come upon the world. What's stopping him from doing that now? It's his love. God is after our hearts. He's after our, our lives. He wants us to be in right relationship with him. That's why he does what he does. It, it, that's why he is so patient with you. That's why he's so patient with me because he loves me. He loves you and he's drawing you into, into his loving arms. And he's just waiting, waiting for those people who would respond to the call of redemption. That's why he does oftentimes what he does. So you're going to have these questions. There's no doubt about it. In fact, the Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, that our thoughts are not his thoughts, our ways are not his ways. So higher are his thoughts and ways than our, our ways. That's paraphrased, but it's up there for you. But the idea is that God doesn't do things the way that we would do them. Anybody feel that? You ever see God do that in your life? Like, that's not the way I would have done that, Lord. I would have lessened my pain and suffering, and I would have came about that. I think we probably could have gotten 
there some other way? And the Lord would say, no, we couldn't. No, we couldn't. God is a loving Father, and he knows how to get to our hearts. And anybody who's a parent here understands that is the, that is the challenge of a parent, is how to target the heart. I can get my kids to change their external behavior, but that does nothing. How do I get to their heart? How do I get to, because if I can change the heart, I can change everything. Not only the external behavior, but everything else along with that. The attitudes. You know, and, and so that's what God is about. He doesn't do things the way that we do them, but he always does things right. So God wants you to know this morning that no matter uh, what he's up to, ultimately it boils down to one thing. His glory. It boils down to his glory. It's all a matter of of glory. That's what I'm calling this message this morning because as surely as the sun rises and sets, the Lord will get glory in every single event of your life somehow, some way. Uh, this is illustrated so clearly to us in this text and, and no doubt this will be applicable to all of us this morning. Um, Jesus is performing his seventh miracle in the book of John and we've gone through them up to this point kind of sporadically here and there as we've gone through them but this is the seventh miracle in the book of John. It's the last miracle that John records. Not that Jesus only did seven miracles, right? We know that he did many miracles. In fact, John would record in John 20 verses 30 through 31, he would say, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that, he, he picked these seven, these are written. These seven miracles were written so that you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Sort of just an encapsulation of who Jesus is. These seven I am statements. I am. Jesus declaring himself to be God in every situation. But these seven miracles that John picks out are for the purpose of us believing in him. And coming to salvation in him. And that is the whole point of it. Believing and, and obtaining life through him. Now, if you're into numbers in the Bible then you know that the number seven in the Bible is the number of what? Completion. The number of completion. I find it interesting that the seventh miracle, the completion miracle, if you will, happens to be the miracle of resurrection. Because in resurrection, we are complete. In other words, we, if we stay dead in the grave, Jesus' death and resurrection means nothing. But if we rise again from the dead, we're complete in him then. And that is the whole point of this. It is the resurrection of Jesus, as I said earlier, the Apostle Paul would say means everything to the Christian faith. The Christian faith means nothing without the resurrection. And it just so happens that, you know, coincidentally, that this is the seventh miracle, not coincidence. This is the gospel. And this is, completes the gospel in the idea that there is resurrection. And so... The Lord wants to show to us this morning, he wants to reveal to us that although he is working behind the scenes in our lives and, and all of that, it, it is all for one purpose, for his glory. That's where we're going to pick it up today. Before we can get to the resurrection, we have to get, to get to the death of Lazarus. And that's where we find ourselves today. And the Lord is going to show us how he is working in the background of your life. If you're going through something today, listen up. Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. And, and the fact that he worked in the background while Lazarus was dying, while he laid dead actually, God was in the background working. And you can receive that in your situation today, that Jesus Christ is at work in your life. You might not see it, but we believe it because the word of God tells us that. And you've seen it so many times in your life already. If you look backwards, you have testimonies of how Jesus was working in the background of circumstances and how he brought you through. Because the word of God tells us that God works everything out. Not just some things, everything out. That means even the bad stuff for our good. For the good of those who love him who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. We begin by looking at the bad news here in verse 1 where it says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and, Mar and her sister Martha, was Martha who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped, her, uh, wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, John is the only 
uh, gospel writer that speaks of this event. And he unfolds it here in chapter 11 for us. And he is also the only gospel writer that introduces us to this family, to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Now, he speaks about Mary and Martha. The other gospel writers speak about that, not really about Lazarus. This is the only account where we have all three of them together and, how, and, and really speaking about this, the resurrection of, uh, of, of uh, Lazarus. And so what John is trying to help us understand is that Jesus loved this family very much. He loved them. He was in relationship with these symbols. They were important, these siblings' symbols. They were important to him, so much so that when something went wrong, they came to him. They knew to come to Jesus. They were in relationship with Jesus. So who is this family? Lazarus. He is not the Lazarus that we just spoke about in, in Luke, uh, Luke chapter 17, the rich man and Lazarus, that account there. That is not the same Lazarus that we're talking about here. That Lazarus was a poor beggar that... Uh, was there, in, 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 you know, before um, the rich man's um, palace there or whatnot. And, and that's a different, different Lazarus. Lazarus was a common name. This Lazarus is the, the Lazarus that happens to be the brother of Mary and Martha. So those are two different dudes. We know that they both, both the, La the Lazarus, though, had something in common. We know that they both had faith in Jesus. We know that the Lazarus uh, of, the, of, the, of the account of the rich man and Lazarus that died he went to Abraham's bosom. The only way that you can get to Abraham's bosom is faith in the coming Messiah who is Jesus Christ. And so we know that according to Luke 17, that man, that man was looking forward to the Messiah coming. We know this Lazarus believes in Jesus. This Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, believes in Jesus. And in fact, we see that shown in the fact that the Lord knows that he's going to be risen again from the dead, not just physically, but spiritually. And also his sister, Martha, we'll see in verse 24, says that, you know what, she understands that he will rise again from the dead. And then Martha goes on to declare that Jesus Christ, in verse 27, is the Messiah. So they all have that understanding and they know that. And so this Lazarus, both of these Lazarus have that one thing in common, that they both put their faith in Jesus. Lazarus in the Greek translation um, is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Eleazar, which means God is my help, and we see God work tremendously in both of these men. You know, the, the poor Lazarus and the Lazarus that's being spoken of in this chapter, both of them, God is my help. This Lazarus was of the city of Bethany. Now, the city of Bethany, throw that map up there for me if you would. The city of Bethany was located just two miles west of Jerusalem on the other side of the Mount of Olives there. Jesus probably crossed through there several times was a city that, you know, just, just a couple miles away from Jerusalem. He spent many, much time there, no doubt. Um, when Jesus receives this news here, he's also in a city called Bethany. But it's the Bethany across the Jordan River. Throw up the other map there, and I'll show you there where that is. That is the Bethany to the, um, in the center of the map, just directly above the Dead Sea there. That Bethany is where Jesus is. When he receives news, this is about 20 miles away from the Bethany of where Lazarus is, just two miles from Jerusalem. And so um, this is where all of this happens. Jesus is coming from another city. And uh, in fact, interesting enough, in the, in the Bethany um, across the Jordan River there is where Luke chapter 13 through 17 took place. That's where, where, where we've been journeying. You know, as we've been in the book of Luke and we've been talking about that, that's where everything occurred on the west side of the Jordan where in, in that Bethany, that's where Jesus was. And he is even in this account here. And now he will go back. He's making his way to Jerusalem and he will go back uh, to, to Bethany to uh, deal with the situation with Lazarus. Now, notice Bethany was the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary, the one who anointed Jesus' feet with expensive perfume, not Mary Magdalene. There's so many confusing things and terms in, this, in these six chapters. That's why we don't just brush through it so everybody understands who we're talking about. This is not Mary Magdalene. This is not Mary, Jesus' mother. This is Mary, the sister of Lazarus. And she, uh, there were two accounts where Mary uh, anointed Jesus' feet. Not Mary Magdalene did it once in Luke chapter 7. We see that. And then Mary, the sister of Lazarus, does it in Luke chapter 12. Interesting enough, I mean, John chapter 12, interesting enough, John is talking about the anointing before he even describes, he, he even, you know, gives the account because the account of when she does that is 
just a couple days before Jesus goes to the cross. And so there's a separation between John chapter 11 and John chapter 12 of a couple months. And in that time period, we'll go through it all, but Jesus does many other things. But this Mary that's being spoken of will be the same Mary that anointed Jesus' feet with her uh, expensive oil. And, and you know, remember, Judas got all upset about it, and he was, why didn't we just take that and sell it and use it for the poor? And, and we understand why she did it. She didn't even know why she did it, I don't think. Anybody ever do something for God that they have no idea why they did? I can tell you I've done it. Nobody, I'm the only one here. So yeah, we, we do that. The only couple people do anyways. I'm glad you're listening to the Lord. Because he puts you in situations where you do things where you don't understand why you're doing it. God doesn't always use our logic. Didn't we just read that verse that his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways? So, so the fact that he does that, he does do that. And I don't think Mary really quite understood what she was doing. But Jesus then would reveal to his disciples that she did it because she was preparing his body for burial. She did it out of devotion and love for Jesus. But God said there's a bigger plan in this. And it is anointment of my body. And so this is the Mary that we're speaking of. Mary had a personality that must have been one of humility and deep devotion because we see that as she's mentioned in the scriptures as it relates to Jesus. Now her sister Martha was totally on the opposite end. Not that she wasn't relational with Jesus or anything like that, but Martha was a type A personality. Like she was always on the go. She was doing stuff. She was running the household. In fact, Mary was the city of the, uh, the village of Bethany was... Um, you know, it was Mary's city, and, and, and the house was Martha's. You can see what's happening there. Martha was somebody who ran the house. She made sure everything was in line. And, and, you know, when things got out of whack, she would get upset. We see that clearly in the illustration of uh, where in Luke chapter 10 where um, she goes off on Jesus. Don't do that. Not a smart idea, but she does because her personality is such that she, when she's not in control, she has a problem. Anybody with that? So she's, she, she goes to Jesus and she says, tell Mary to get up and get over here and help me. I mean, doesn't she understand that we got all this stuff going on? Do, can, you, can you make her a little more productive? I know that she's sitting at your feet doing nothing, but could you make her a little more productive? And Jesus says, oh, she's being productive. I think sometimes we have the mentality that if we're not moving and not stressed and not doing stuff, that we're not doing anything. And sometimes the Lord says, can you just sit at my feet? Can you just listen to my word? Can you just allow me to bathe you? in my word and wash you. That is productive. And Jesus said, no, I'm sorry, Martha, but that won't be taken from you, from Mary because she's chosen what is better. And so it's these sisters, these two, completely opposites, their brother Lazarus, that this story is all about. So these sisters send word to Jesus some 20 miles away. It's about a one-day journey for the average person back then um, that their brother, the one, listen, who Jesus Loves. Not Jesus loved. It's never past tense when we're talking about God's love for you. It's always present tense. Loves. Future tense. Loves. God loves you. He didn't love you. He loves you. Not past tense. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't love you then. He loves you through the cross even today. He loves you. He loved Lazarus, the one whom you love, Jesus. It's interesting how they phrase that. It's interesting that they didn't come say, Jesus, it's the one whom loves you that is ill. No, no, it's the one whom you love. Jesus showed affection for Lazarus. People understood that he loves him. The word that's used there is not the word agapo or agape, it's not that Greek word. And interesting enough, it is the Greek word phileo, which means brotherly. It's the, it's the type of brotherly love. It, it, is, it is actually a relational love. It's an affectionate relational love. And, and it's interesting that that's how it's described here, is that Jesus, your brother, the one whom you love, is sick. The one whom is in relationship with you. You see, we, we, we kind of, we use one word love for everything that we use and it, there is no differentiator and although we mean different things by it, it's the same word. 
That's not the way it works in the Bible. And I know Pastor Brian taught on this not too long ago. The different types of the word love and how it's used. But, but here's the interesting fact is that um, we, everybody in the world experiences one kind of love from God. And that is agape love. And that is unconditional love. It's not based on you. It's based on him. And I'll, I'll define it here in a little bit because the word changes in just a couple verses. But in this particular uh, place, uh, you know, the, the, the women, the, the sisters speaking about Lazarus use the word phileo. Not everybody has that kind of love from God. Not everybody can experience that kind of love because that is a relational love. That love can only happen if you're family. You see, and so it's interesting that they would use that here, speaking about Lazarus being in a relationship. He's your, the, the, you loved him with brotherly love. Sometimes we look at, you know, John 21 where Jesus uh, is restoring Peter. And Peter is describing, Jesus says, do you love me, agape? Unconditionally, do you love me, Peter? And Peter says, no, I phileo you. What does that mean? It means that, that I love you with a brotherly love, that I'm in relationship with you, Jesus. Peter wasn't down, dumbing down the word. He was trying to express the affection for Jesus in that. And Jesus just kept asking him the question three times, just like he, he restored that which Peter lost there the night before he was crucified. When he denied him three times, Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? And, and here the word phileo is helping us to understand that there's relationship there. And you have that kind of love from Jesus. Jesus loves you, phileos you in that way if you're in relationship with him. If you are not, then guess what? The opportunity is available to you today. That you can experience that kind of love from Jesus. We all get to the agape love, the unconditional love. That is, that is God's love for his creation. But not all of us have the phileo love. I want the phileo love. I want to be in relationship with Jesus. I, don't, I, I want the agape love too. Don't get me wrong. I want all the love that God can pour on me. I love his love, you know. And, and so it's, it's awesome. But the reality is, is that not everybody gets the phileo. But if you're in relationship with him today, you have it. It was the one whom Jesus loved, that loves, he phileos. He was sick. Now, so, so we have the bad news. Lazarus is ill. He's sick. Now we have some bizarre news. Look at verse 4. But when Jesus heard, it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, generally when I hear news about my friends being sick or whatever, if I'm sick or whatever, I don't automatically think, hey, praise God. Anybody with me on that? Like, are we all like, hey, I'm sick. Praise God, man. Get your glory, Lord. That's generally not how I, I deal with sickness. And that's probably not how you deal with it either. We automatically, um, you know, because of the way our minds work, we automatically associate this idea with maybe I'm doing something wrong. Maybe I'm in the wrong, maybe I've done something wrong. Maybe it's my sin that's caused me to be sick or whatever. And, and, and that certainly can be the case, but it, it isn't always the case. In fact, there are many instances in the Bible, a couple to, to name a few, but that where Jesus says, no, no. No one sinned in this situation. Jesus is dealing with a, a tradition of man during this culture that would say that if you're sick, if you're dead, or if something's happening to you bad, that's because you're doing bad, right? But, but if good stuff's happening to you, that's because you're doing good, right? It's all external. And, and I would say that that didn't stop there. That thinking didn't stop back in that culture. It exists today in the church today. That if we're experiencing good things, it's because we're good, but if we're experiencing bad things, it's because we're bad. What if we, good people, let's, there are no good people, but, but let's just call redeemed people experience bad things and unredeemed people experience good things and it all's for his glory. How about that? That's the way it works. Uh, you know, there is certain circles of blessing that you find yourself in when you're obeying God and you're doing the right things. But, but, that doesn't necessarily translate to zero pain and suffering if you're trying to do the right thing for God. In fact, I would say oftentimes it brings it more to you. The more you try and live for the Lord, the more the enemy comes after you. The more threat you are. And God will allow it. 
because it's a matter of his glory. Because it's a matter of his glory. And here's the interesting thing. It's for your good. It's a matter of his glory and it's for your good. It's like you can't separate those two things. Like God gets glory, but he works out your good at the very same time. Like he's a giver always. You know, he, you'll never outgive God. God, I've been serving you faithfully for all these years. Why aren't you doing things better for me? Oh, I am. I am. You just, don't, you just don't notice it. You don't recognize it. You don't understand what's waiting for you. Because we're about the here and the now, and Jesus just told us a, a couple weeks ago, don't be about just the here and the now, but invest in the here and the now for the then. Because that's what matters. Eternity is what matters. God uses everything for his own purpose. Proverbs 16, 4. Listen, even the wicked for the day of trouble. And I know that's hard to understand. But God uses everything for his purpose. Everything. Anything that you'll ever experience in life, you have experienced or you will experience, he uses that all for his glory. It's all he uses the wickedness that goes on in the world. He uses our sin. He uses it all. Somehow he gets glory out of it. I don't get it. He doesn't cause it. So don't misunderstand that. God is not up in heaven orchestrating evil. He can't do that. God can do everything. He can't do that. But the reality is, is that he is so in control of everything that he can use it all. Now, if that doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what will. The fact that God is holy and righteous and just and good and loving and all these things, his character is so beyond anything that we even understand. And he's so against, you know, the, 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 the things, there's things, the seven things that God hates, he detests, he detests sin, and yet he uses it. That's when you're sovereign, you can do that kind of stuff because you can separate the good from the evil, and you can, you can use these things to orchestrate your plan. And I don't, I don't get it. I'm not God. But I trust that. And I believe that, and I've seen that in my own life. The issue is, will I look for the good in the situation? Will I look for his glory in the circumstance? Or will I whine and complain about where I'm at? You know, we'll see here later in this account that Martha is upset with Jesus because he didn't come. Because he didn't come. Jesus is saying right here, it's not a matter of death. This will not lead to death. But it does. But it doesn't. Because when you're Jesus, you're in control. And when you know the Father has a bigger plan in mind, you submit to that and you're just like, hey, this will not lead to eternal death. This will be a, a situation that God will use for his glory and he will glorify his son through this. And there are circumstances in your lives, there are things that you're going, that are going on in your life that are no different than this account. That God is saying, I know you don't understand because you can't see this, but you can trust that I'm at work as it relates to what I'm doing here in Lazarus, I'm doing in your life. And I'm working in the circumstances. Look for it. Don't be oblivious. Don't be so internal that you miss the working hands of God because those are the things that encourage you and press you on and will press you into him further. I look at the, the account of Joseph the Bible, and he could have complained all day long, man. Why are my brothers putting me in this cave? Why did they do this to me? Why are they acting like I'm dead? Why did they sell me into slavery? Why did I go to Potiphar's house and his wife do this to me? Why did I get put into prison? Why did I do this and that? And I could sit here and complain about it all. Or I could say, God, you're at work, and I'm going to trust you in it, and I'm going I'm to give you glory in the midst of all my pain and my suffering. That's how I'm going to deal with my trials. I'm going to submit and surrender to you in these moments and I'm going to trust that, that um, you know, you're doing everything that you say you are. 
and that you're working out for my good. Because I promise you, although that promise is not conditional, it's not based on you. It's not based on how you respond. God works everything out for the good of those who love him who are called according to his purpose. That's not based on you. It's based on him. So it's not conditional. But I would say that it's conditional in a sense whether you see it or not. It, it's all a matter of how you address, how you, how you walk through the war. Right? Because you can have all kinds of different pers- perspectives. and different, You can see things in different ways. But God would say, if you would surrender to me and you would raise the right flag to me and you would say, Lord, in this circumstance, I'm going to walk through it and I am going to trust you and look for the good in it. And I know that it's there. Help me to see it. And you know, when I'm weak and I'm broken down, Lord, I'm expecting you to pick me back up and strengthen me. Help me. And I know you will because that's the kind of God you are. And when we stand on his promises like that and we address the, the circumstances and the trials in our lives that way, we give him much more glory. But when we kick and scream and complain and are upset, and, and I understand, man, there are difficult things going through people's lives right now. Man, I've just been overwhelmed by the things that have been going on. Just in our little church here and, 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 you know, and just people that I know. My best friend from high school died on Thursday. Um, I, ha- I met a guy on um, Friday at a trade show in, in Las Vegas that I was at, and the guy tells me his life is just a disaster. His brother killed his dad on, 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 uh, a- you know, in April. His son, 13-year-old son, committed suicide. What do you say to a guy like that? Hey, man, it'll be okay, brother. Just trust the Lord. Yeah, kind of. What else can you say? He's a believer. Brother, I'm sorry. I love you, man. I'm, I, I don't even know what to explain what to say to you, but what I, what I can tell you is that, you know what, God will, God will work through these circumstances, and you just keep your eyes on Jesus. Oh, that's, a, that's like a canned response. No, that's a biblical response. What else can we say? We have to point people to Jesus. And, you know, oftentimes when people are hurting, we say the most hurtful things. But I think that the one thing that we have to make sure we do is say the truthful thing. Because the truth will set you free. And when you bring the truth into a circumstance in somebody's life, the enemy has no power. You completely strip away that power. Now, is everybody going to be healed of their diseases? No. Is everybody going to rise from the dead? No. Not here. Not now. But eventually, yes. And so I, you know, when my brother died, one of the things that I I went to, the thing that I held on to was a scripture that says, you know, we, we, we don't mourn as people who have no hope. Because my hope is not in my life here. It's not in this flesh. It is in the Son of God who gave his life for me so that I could rise again and live with him in glory. And it's the same for you. And so that's what I trust in. I don't trust in anything else. I don't trust in superficial comfort in this world because there is no comfort from things like that except for truth. Truth is our comfort. It's our blanket. It's God's love being poured over us. And the Lord would say to you today, if you're going through something difficult, if you're going through circumstances, and I know there are people here that are, The Lord would say to you, trust me. Just take me at my word. I'll walk you through it. I'll see you through it. And look for my hand in your life. Watch me work. Watch me work. And and you're going to see the good. And ultimately, people are going to say, how are you doing this? And you're going to say, it's all for him. And guess what? He's glorified. He's going to be glorified anyway. But why not give him more glory? There isn't enough glory in the world that, that, that we could give him and, and that be enough. Like every opportunity you get, you give him glory. And I promise you, when you suffer well, you glorify him the most. Because that's when people's minds are boggled, man. And they're like, how can you do that? And it's not like we are not human beings. And it's not like we don't hurt and there is not pain and there is not that going on. But... We have a God that's bigger than that. And he's able to speak right into our life and heal our hurting hearts. 
He's able to minister to us and wrap us up in his arms and love on us in these circumstances and situations beyond what anyone could ever do. And so Jesus would tell you this morning to just trust him. He's at work. He's in control. And he's working everything out for your good. You just got to trust him with it. I don't think anyone explains the glory of God better than uh, John Piper. I think his purpose in life is to understand, is to help us understand what the glory of God is. And, you know, I love listening to him talk about the glory of God. There, I, 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 don't, I think that he is the foremost expert in biblical understanding of the, of the topic of the glory of God. He said this about, about the glory of God. He said it's best defined as holiness. We just sang Holy, 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 you know. And we cry, holy, holy, holy. That song, we, we, were, we were crying out, holy, holy, holy. He, he, he says there's no better definition of glory than holiness, than God being holy. He went on to say the holiness of God is his being in a class by himself, in his perfection and greatness and worth. His holiness is what he is as God that nobody else is. It is his quality of perfection that can't be improved upon, that can't be imitated, that, can, th that is incomparable, that determines all that he is and is determined by nothing from outside of him. It signifies his infinite worth, his intrinsic infinite worth, his intrinsic infinite value. All summed up, God's glory equals holiness. It's God being set apart in a class of his own. Like there's no one like him. And I'm not just talking like, you know, holy and righteous. I mean, there's nobody like him in any aspect. In the way that he loves us. In the way that he is patient with us. And how kind he is to us. There is none like him. Therefore, he deserves all the glory in the world. Because he is completely separate from the world. He is completely different. Leviticus 10.3 says, says this about it. it. It says, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. That word translated in Hebrew is the same word. It means holy. I'll be set apart, sanctified, holy, same word. And before all the people, what? I will be glorified. When God is set apart and he is completely of another, he is glorified the most. That's why when his people are holy, be holy for I am holy, when we're separate from the world, when we are of a completely other, he gets the most glory. Because people look at that and go, what? How does that work? How do you suffer like that? How, do you, how are you able to walk through these things like that? You know, why, is, you know, why are you so successful? It's all him, man. When, you just, when you're separate from the world, not separate in the sense that we, we don't associate with the world. That's not what I'm talking about because we go into the world and we minister to people in the world. But what I mean is that we live differently than the world. You know, like we're, we're or, or not only that, but, but when we do blow it, we actually take accountability. We don't point fingers at somebody else and say it was your fault. When, when God's people do all of those things, because we do do all those things, but when we do those right, we are separated because the world doesn't do that. No, no, it's if you wouldn't have uh, said that, I, I wouldn't have gotten upset and punched you in the face. It's really your fault. Is that how that works? That's the way the flesh works. You know, but the, but the reality is, is it's my fault. If I would have controlled my temper, I wouldn't have punched you in the face. You know, so, so the reality is, is that the world's really great at casting blame. And, you know, it's really, at the end of the day, when we separate ourselves and we take accountability for what we've done or whatever, when we are different than the way that the world responds, he gets glory for that. And we give him glory, right? We, we say, yeah, it's all him. It's not me. It's all him. God can get glory in all different kinds of ways. The main way that he gets his glory is through his son. That's what Jesus said here, that I might be glorified. Jesus Christ always glorifies the Father, and the Father will glorify His Son. It's kind of an exchange there. And uh, they're, they're two different people, but they're the same. That's the Trinity, you know. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All God, different functions, right? 
And so Jesus says this. Here's what the, the, the Word of God says about God getting glory through His Son. Hebrews 1.3. Jesus, it's He, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the Word of His power. Jesus Christ is the exact imprint, and God is glorified through Jesus. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen, listen, His glory. His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ is the glory of God revealed to us. Okay? His holiness is also revealed through creation. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. <laughs> Romans 1.20, For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. Creation speaks of His glory, of who He is, His holiness, that He's separate, that He's completely different than anything else. He also, His holiness is also revealed through our lives, through you and I as we live our lives. And, and 1 Peter 4.11 says, Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies Listen, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We glorify God the Father through God the Son because without Jesus we can't get to Him. And when we live our lives right, they both get glory. God is glorified through everything. That's why the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 10.31 that everything that we do whether we eat or drink, we do all for the glory of God. That means when you, you're shopping in the grocery store, you're doing, look, get your glory, Lord, you know, and you're just taking your cart right down the thing, you're saying, glorify yourself, Lord, you know. I mean, everywhere you go, God is going to glorify himself through you if you let him. And so he can glorify himself through us. God can even glorify himself through our suffering. And that's what this is speaking of in this account. It's all a matter that these people are suffering. Lazarus is sick, but Jesus knows the end. And he's saying, don't worry. Now, we'll see next week, his disciples have a whole other issue. They're like, you want to go to Bethany by Jerusalem? Like, they want to kill you, man. Like, you want to go there? What are you thinking? And yet we see doubting Thomas. We call him Doubting Thomas, but he's a man of valor in this particular account where he stands up and goes, let's go. Let's go die with him if that's the case. Talk about faith. I don't know where I was going with that, but whatever. <laughs> so, again, maybe you're going through difficult things and the Lord is telling you, just trust me through it. Joseph trusted God through everything he went through. And you know what? God just kept elevating him and elevating him and he never let the circumstances weigh him down and get him down. He just, you know, when, when he was thrown in the, the pit, he just worked hard and he glorified God through his work and he was, he, he was bought by Potiphar and uh, elevated to the, to the steward of the house and he was in control of everything and, and so everything was going great. But then his wife, Potiphar's wife, tried to come at him and, and, and you know, that didn't work out well. He got thrown in prison. He didn't complain about that. So he worked his way up to to the steward of the prison, to the point that the Bible says that the guard didn't even keep watch over Joseph, like just pretty much gave him the keys of the place and said, hey, lock up when you're done, man. He's a prisoner, right? So he's glorifying God in his life, right? And so there's a baker and a cupbearer that come into that prison and they have a dream and Joseph tells them what that means and, and they end up, it, it happens exactly the way he says. And two years later, the cupbearer, Tells Pharaoh, who had a dream that nobody can interpret, he said, hey, there's a man in prison. Two years later, there's a man in prison that's wor that's at, um, that can interpret your dream. And so that's what ends up happening. And Joseph then becomes the second most powerful man in Egypt. And God uses that whole thing. God is at work in that whole thing, and he's getting glory in that whole thing. And he ends up um, saving two nations from the famine. Egypt and Israel. 
the house of Israel, his father and his household all came into Egypt and God preserved them there. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not his ways. And even Joseph acknowledges, comes to the place where he says to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And God is saying the same thing to you and I today. Yes, tragedy happens. And the devil means it to trash us and destroy us and devour us. But God means it for good. He'll use it for good. So look to him. I know it sounds bizarre. But not, it doesn't really get any clearer here. Jesus moves on in verse 5 and he says, Now, Jesus loved Martha and his sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Notice Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. Remember I said the word changes? He agapao. He agape. Same word. That's the root word. Agapao. He loved unconditionally these people. Now he's talking about God's unconditional love for this entire family. He's saying God loves these people unconditionally, like beyond, like that, not just unconditional, but fueled with faithfulness, commitment, and an act of the will. In other words, God was at work and had their best interest in mind. That's what it means. God is at work. He loves you unconditionally, not based on who you are. And he's at work even in your life. It's different than phileo. It's not a relational love, but it's an overall love that is a loving kindness that would be patient and endure all the evilness in the world so that you could hear the gospel, so you could respond to it. That's how he loves us. Jesus is saying, you know, he's committed to this family. And he's not going to be, in this situation, we see that the way he responds, we're thinking, what? What do you mean? You, you, you love them, but then you, you don't do anything? You just wait? But you understand, according to the way the whole account goes, that Lazarus was dead four days when Jesus came. It was a day journey to where he was. So probably when the messenger left, Lazarus died. Like before the messenger probably even got out of the city, Lazarus died. It's the only way that he could be in the grave for four days. So Jesus says, let's wait a couple days and then we'll go. So on the fourth day, he shows up. He's been in the grave for four days. Why? Why doesn't he work in my timing? Why doesn't he work before this stuff happens? Why doesn't he stop all this? Because it's a matter of his glory. And so at the end of the day, what happens is Jesus says, no, we're going to wait. What he's doing is he's setting the stage that there can be no misunderstanding that this is an absolute miracle from God. Because the way that this culture was and the traditions that they had, as bizarre as they are, as bizarre as ours are here today, the reality is, is that when a person died in this day, they believed that the spirit hovered around the body for three days. And they waited. And they were waiting to see if they could resurrect. And at the fourth day, the body would begin to decompose so the spirit would leave. Why did Jesus wait? It's a matter of glory. Because God has to get glory in this situation and there can be no other explanation. So Jesus says, no, we're going to wait for the fourth day when the Pharisees and everyone else cannot deny that this was a divine act of God in this situation. And you're asking yourself, why isn't he working in my life now? Why isn't he doing what I want to do now? It's a matter of glory. Like he knows what he's doing. You can trust him with his timetable. He knows exactly when to enter the situation. He knows exactly what to do in the situation. But it's not going to be the way you would do it. That's why I come right back to Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. It's not, his thoughts are not your thoughts. His ways are not your ways. And as much as I struggle with that, why, are, why God, why? You know, as much as I struggle with these things, I trust that he's at work in his timing. It's a matter of his timing. And, you know, he gets the most glory when he responds at the right time. And so Jesus tells 
you know, it's confusing to his disciples, no doubt. We've used the word love here twice in six verses, but you just don't seem like you're really loving them, you know? Seems like you could do more. And we approach God like that a lot of times. And back to my original, you know, kind of introduction of the, the way that we ask God questions matters. Like we don't question God and his character and nature of why he isn't moving in the right time, why he isn't orchestrating and doing things to stop these, these circumstances from coming in my life. We don't, we don't ask God those kind of questions. We trust him in that situation and we can be curious about how he's going to get his glory, but we don't defame him in, in, in the way that we look at our circumstances and say, you could have stopped this and you didn't. As if he doesn't love you. Why do you think he used the word love twice in the first six verses? Because he loves us. And Jesus is trying to get us to understand that God has a plan and he is sovereign and he is at work and he is working everything out for your good, but it's in his time. And so you have to trust him with that. I want to challenge you today, no matter what you're going through in your life, that you look at your circumstances today differently. That you say, God, this is what I'm going through and you know. And you know the pain in my heart and you know the sorrow that I'm suffering. But I'm going to trust you with it. And by faith, I'm going to put these things in your hands. And I'm going to surrender these things to you. And I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to look for the good. I'm going to count on it. And I'll actually take you at your word and look for it. And, I, and I'm going to try and give you the utmost glory in everything that I do. If you, will, if you will take that challenge today and you step into that role and you tell God, this is how I'm going to approach this situation, you're going to see him work amazingly in your life like you've never seen him before. God will get more glory out of your life when you're surrendered to him in these ways and you will see some things going on in your life that you wouldn't have seen if you wouldn't have come to him in that way. His disciples are clueless here. They don't understand anything. All they're worried about is Jesus dying. I don't know what you're worried about in your circumstances, but I can tell you that, you know, whatever your best case scenario is, is nothing compared to what his best case scenario is for you. God does exceedingly and abundantly more than you could ever ask or think of. So when you surrender to his plan, you watch him do amazing things. And I want to challenge you to do that today in your suffering, in your hurt, in your circumstances, in your trials. And you know what? I want to hear the testimonies of what God does through those things. And I want you to communicate with me seriously. I want to hear. I know God is here today and he's given this word to you and I want to be encouraged by the things that he does through this. Amen? Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for who you are, Lord, and, and that you are above and beyond anything that we could ever imagine, Lord. You are holy. You are glorious. You are of a completely other, Lord. And the amazing thing is you've put us in that category with you, Lord. You made us new. You've made us different. And we thank you for that, God. And yet we know that as we're in this world, there are difficulties that we struggle with and there are true trials that... that Many of us are going through in these times right now, Lord. I think of, you know, j just various people in our fellowship that are really going through it right now and their family suffering and, and all these different things. Lord, you know those things. And you want to work in those things. And you want to encourage uh, your, your, your children this morning that we can trust you with our deepest hurts. We can trust you with our deepest sorrows, that the pain... That, that no one else can take away, God, we can surrender to you this morning. And we can trust you with it and that you're going to do amazing things through that faith today. And so, Lord, as my brothers and sisters are here today, God, and as there are things on their hearts and minds, would you help them to surrender those things to you today? Would you help them to wait, raise the white flag and say, Lord, I can't do this. I'm struggling with my grieving. I'm struggling with my suffering. I'm struggling with these trials in my life right now and, and I, I don't want to try and do it on my own. 
And I'm going to surrender these things to you. And I'm going to trust, Lord, that you are going to work out my good and I'm going to see it in my life. And I want to see you get glory, Lord. So as we just surrender those things even now to you, Lord, the altar's open if people want to come forward and, and lay those things down at, during this time. We can, we'll be here to pray with you afterwards if you want to come forward. If you don't know Jesus today, the Lord is inviting you to come into right relationship with him. And he is saying to you today that you want it, he wants to be in that phileo relationship with you, in that, in that brotherly kind of relationship with you. But it can only come by faith in him today. If you would just bow your knee to him and surrender your life to him, he will come inside and he will make you new. If you will surrender your sin to him this morning and say, Lord, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. And I believe Jesus is that Savior. I'm turning away from my sin and I'm turning to Jesus with all this stuff and I'm just coming before you and saying, Lord, I need to be clean. Will you forgive me? Will you cleanse me? Will you accept me into your family today, Lord? Through the blood of your Son because he died and he rose again for me and I'm putting my faith in him right now. Lord, your word tells us that if anybody would respond by faith like that, you would by no means cast them out. You would welcome them into your family. So Lord, as we just take a few minutes to respond to your word this morning, may your spirit move mightily in this place. May we just all surrender our lives to you, Lord, and allow you to get the glory that you deserve. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.